This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. All right, everybody. So our special guest today is Nader Dabit on the AWS mobile team. Hey, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm Nader Dabit. Uh, I work with AWS mobile as a developer advocate. I'm also big into the React Native community. So if you've ever played around with some React Native stuff, you may have seen some of my blogging on the React Native training blog or heard me on the React Native radio podcast. All right. So sorry about that. That was Natter, not Nader. Natter. Got it. Right, right. My bad. <laughs> but but the, the spelling would um, tend to be pronounced Nader, but because it's like some old school pronunciation, I go by Natter, but I actually go by either. So um, it's all good. Okay, good. Excellent. <laughs> we also have with us Amy Knight. Hello from Nashville. And today I'm your host, AJ O'Neill, coming at you live from sunny Provo. So, Natter, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about AWS Mobile and specifically, I think you're going to talk about some of the command line tools today, Amplify. What is that? Well, yeah, so the two main things that I kind of work with are AWS Amplify and a new managed GraphQL service called um, AWS AppSync. And they are separate, but they are also kind of work together. But it's kind of like the two main things that that I'm kind of focused on as a dev advocate. But um, so Amplify is a JavaScript SDK that allows front-end developers to easily get up and running with managed cloud services. So when people think of AWS, they typically don't really think of front-end developers. They kind of maybe think of you know, back-end services and back-end developers. But um, I, can, I think what we're kind of seeing, not only at AWS, but um, at other cloud providers and really just in the software ecosystem in general, is uh, this tendency to offload sophisticated and complex infrastructure and kind of try to get infrastructure as a service as, as opposed to building your own infrastructure. So, for example, a lot of people are using services like Firebase, Auth0, Cognito uh, at AWS to do things like authentication and um, storage instead of like building their own implementation from scratch. So at AWS Mobile, we focus on um, allowing front-end developers to get up and running with uh, a multitude of different services that are similar to that or that are, are authentication and things like that. And we have like a couple of tools. We have an Amplify, we have AWS Amplify, which is basically the JavaScript uh, library that allows you to connect to these services. But we also have a CLI that allows you to scaffold new services from your command line. So from within a JavaScript app, you can just spin up an authentication service and then use the Amplify library to hook in and this and so on and so forth. Okay. So tell me a little bit more. Managed cloud. Now, I understood Firebase is like a real-time syncing database, if that's still what it is. I think so. Auth0 is basically OAuth2, similar to Facebook Connect, but made so anybody can adapt it very quickly. Cognito, I'm not very familiar with. Is that particularly Amazon, or what, what's that one? Yeah, right. So Cognito is, uh, is, is an Amazon, services, Amazon service, and it's basically a way to manage users and sign up and sign in users and to manage their passwords. And a lot of times people will kind of spin up or create uh, an Amazon Cognito 
service or user pool, I guess you would call it. And that pool of users can then be used to access the application, not only from like one single point of entry, like your web application, but a lot of times if you have a single user sign up, we also want them to be able to sign in not only from the web, but maybe from the desktop app and the mobile app and whatever other areas, you can kind of use that single user pool to sign in users from that point on. And we manage everything from multi-factor authentication to security to um, working with uh, JWTs on the client. And we do all of the we, we do all of the hard work for you. So you can kind of just not worry about implementing that service. You can kind of just hook into the Cognito service to manage your users. So that, that sounds a lot like Auth0 or maybe StormPath that's kind of in that field. Right, right. Totally. So um, so that, that hits authentication. What are the other managed cloud services that front-end developers uh, want to offload through the tools you have? We are focused on maybe a dozen or so that um, we see a lot of front-end developers are using to kind of build full-stack apps without having to like learn back-end languages and back-end tooling and all that stuff. And I guess uh, the ones that I would say uh, that we're most focused on are analytics. Uh, we have an API layer that allows you to spin up serverless uh, Lambda functions and, and then do interactions within the Lambda function and return you know, values from the Lambda function. Um, for web developers, we also have uh, hosting. So you can basically um, take the application you're working with and then run a command and it it launches your app in a S3 bucket and then sets up all of the, the DNS stuff for you. So you can actually launch your app locally and then you can like set up your, um, your URL and all that stuff. Uh, we have chatbots. Um, we have a new service that I, that I kind of mentioned a, a moment ago called AWS AppSync, which is a serverless GraphQL implementation. It's a managed GraphQL service really. So, um, if you've ever wanted to get up and running with GraphQL, but you don't want to create your own server from scratch and worry about how all that stuff works, you can just create an API and kind of hook into it from Amplify. Um, we have PubSub, we have push notifications, storage. Um, we even have an internationalization library built into the uh, Amplify library so you can do internationalization all kind of within the same the same library. But I would say like, um, like and there's a couple others, and, and there's a lot really, but... What we're really seeing a lot of adoption around or authentication, I guess, uh, storage, which is like S3, the serverless Lambda function stuff, and then the serverless GraphQL. I'd say those four are kind of like the bread and butter. It's still a fairly new library, though, so we're still seeing rapid adoption, and those numbers kind of you know change here and there. All right, thanks. So I think I understand what you're doing with authentication from the description you gave earlier. Amy, did you have any questions on that? before we move on? So I kind of cheated because <laughs> I've already had a little bit of a discussion about this. So I'm actually good. All right. So with storage, one thing that I typically think of is something kind of like maybe Netlify. Is that what you mean by the storage hosting solution where you're uploading your, your HTML and CSS and other assets like that and hosting? Or is this more like large uh, libraries of data or can you give, give me more specifics on what type of storage solutions you're offering? Yeah, so there's most of it just is uh, revolves around S3, which is the simple storage solution, I think is what S3 stands for. 
And it's basically the Amazon service for doing storage. And it's one of the more popular services. But really, it's uh, you can store anything there. So people store websites there, which is you know a combination of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript or whatever. And you can launch your website from an S3 bucket. And an S3 bucket is just a file uh, folder holding all of your, your stuff. But um, really what we're seeing from front-end developers is uh, they're using S3 and this storage module from Amplify to, to store images and store videos and stream images, I mean, stream videos and things like that. And um, a lot of times they'll use the library to do things like image resizing. So if someone uploads an image, you can um, trigger a Lambda function to do stuff with that image, maybe make multiple sizes of that image and then store them in an S3 bucket. So the storage is really kind of around S3, which is a storage solution that um, is part of Amazon or AWS, or really just you know Amazon in general. Okay, so as a front-end developer, my primary use cases would be storing my whole site as well as media libraries, sounds like. Right, so if you have like a, a reference for an image in your in your application, you can, or if you want to create an image reference, you can basically upload through S3 with Amplify, create like a reference that uh, comes back from your S3 location, and then you just store that in your database. And then when you're rendering to your application, you just use that URL as your as your reference. So if I just have like, a, let, let's say I have a flat folder where my application exists, and I just want to say push host this. Would it automatically relink the the local links to S3 links as part of the upload, or how does how does it work if I want to use Amplify to push a site live? So it'll basically push everything, including your images, and then you'll just have local local references. So if you have like dot backslash, you know, dot dot folder name, whatever, it sh- it'll still work because you're basically going to be referencing from that location in S3. Okay, so that still works. That's cool. Yeah. And then I am kind of interested in what you're talking about, AppSync, because when I I think of GraphQL more as like a the protocol to sync than I do necessarily like the structure of how it's stored. And it sounds like this might be a combination of of both the managing what the database looks like as well as how the database syncs. So can you tell me more about that? So with like certain databases or service implementations, they are making decisions around the implementation of the database. But with AppSync, which, what's cool is actually you can use any database you'd like. So we're more of like a layer that is almost like a proxy over any database, but it's a single API layer for you to kind of have as your single um, point of entry for, for doing operations on your, on your databases. So you can actually have multiple data sources so if you're used to working with SQL, you can use SQL, whatever your SQL implementation of choice. If you like NoSQL, you could go that route. Um, we have a few first-class databases that are kind of implemented as part of AppSync. Um, so we have DynamoDB, which is a NoSQL database. We also have um, Elasticsearch. We have HTTP endpoint resolvers, which allow you to basically take existing HTTP endpoints that are typical uh, REST APIs and turn those into GraphQL. And then one of the more popular ones, uh, in, in addition to those, is actually a Lambda function. So you can actually have your GraphQL query mutation actually trigger a Lambda function, and then whatever comes back from there is your is your GraphQL response. 
So what people do if they want a data source that isn't one of those is they usually just use a Lambda function, and then you're able to use whatever you know, data source you like. So if you have an, a MongoDB instance somewhere, or if you have uh, MySQL running somewhere, you just use the Lambda function as your, as your resolver to get and, and retrieve and you know, put data to your database. And then that comes back uh, through, through AppSync, through your uh, resolver. So as a front-end developer, it sounds like I'm still going to have to become pretty familiar with the back-end technologies in order to use something like this. So what is it providing the most value in, in terms of like, what is it abstracting away or what is it that I'm not having to touch because I'm using this? Yeah. So like if you've ever built or if anyone listening has ever built a GraphQL server, you not only have to kind of understand how the database implementation works, right? Because in the, you have to write these resolvers, which are the glue between the actual queries and mutation and the database operations. So you, in the resolver, you actually have to do understand, you know, how the database works. With something like AppSync and other things that are, are out there, if they if they are out there now, or they will be out there. Uh, I feel like the space will, you know, be uh, gathering competition in the future because it uh, seems to be pretty popular, is um, we actually have abstractions over building out a lot of the operations that you would have. So we have templates that build out a lot of the operations for you. So you, you can literally just actually create a single type. Like, so for instance, you want to create like a, I, I, would, I don't want to say to do out, but maybe like a, let's say like you have, this is an example I use a lot of times when I'm teaching like a cities app where you want to have a way for users to create cities they'd like to visit and then add locations within that city that they would like to visit as well. So they can kind of like keep up with like restaurants and stuff. If you wanted to do something like that with AppSync, all you need to do is create the two types, uh, the type of city and the type of location. And then we would actually create not only the data sources, but we'd also create resolvers for all the different operations that you probably want to, to do. So for instance, we create a get, put, delete, um, update. Uh, we even create search and filter resolvers for you that go to the database and do all that stuff. So I think one of the uh, advantages of using AppSync is that you don't really actually have to understand the database implementation, at least at first, and at least... Uh, to get most operations done. But at some point, if you're doing, you know, more complex, sophisticated operations and you need to go in your resolver and do something, you know, a little more complex, then you do actually have to understand certain parts of that. But really our end goal, and we're continually iterating on the user experience there, is to get the resolvers uh, and our user experience around the resolvers to the point where you don't actually have to understand the database implementation. That's really the end goal because we really are... Uh, pushing, or at least the philosophy in general, at least in my opinion, is allowing front-end developers to kind of move further and further up the stack to not really have to learn all of these database technologies, but still be able to build full-stack applications. And this is kind of a good starting point. So how would those relations work without, like, as, as a front-end developer, if I don't want to learn SQL and like, th there still needs to be some way for me to define, like, here's a collection of data I want to throw it in. And then these things are linked to each other. So can you describe it all, like what that might look like in this 
either in the current solution or in the future solution that you're working towards? Like how, how do you abstract the knowledge of, of that? Cause that seems like a technical detail to me. Like how do you abstract that away or make that easier for, for the front end person? Yeah, it's definitely a technical detail and it's not an easy technical problem to solve. Um, right now the implementation looks something like this. So you create a type and I'll actually go back to a to-do type because it's fairly easy to kind of think about if you've ever built a to-do app. Um, you create the to-do type. Let's say the to-do has an ID and a name and maybe a completed Boolean. Um, you go ahead and save that basic schema. And then you create. Uh, we have a button that is called Create Resources. And Create Resources will then take that basic schema and generate a more complex schema that does those operations like uh, lists and pagination and get, put, delete, and update. And then each of those, um, each of those additional pieces of schema have a resolver that are associated with it. And we automatically populate that based on the operation. Um, and then if you'd like to kind of create your own resolver, which does some of this logic, you can just create your own resolver. And then we have a, a drop-down list of, of basic and not so basic operations, just uh, I would say uh, popular operations that people are doing. And you can, you can pull a drop down that says something like get item by ID or um, only get item if the user created this item or, you know, different, different uh, scenarios. And, and, and if you pick the drop down, we'll automatically populate the resolver with the logic that you'll need. Um, of course, you, we can't think of every single situation. So there are areas where um, you'll probably need to do something where we don't have that populated for you. And you'll end up having to either take something we've we've written that gets you part of the way there and edit it or write it from scratch. And that's kind of where we are at this point. So if you need to do something that is a little uh, more complex, you do end up having to understand um, or at least read the documentation. We have a lot of docs around some of this stuff um, to kind of help people get, get going. But yeah, you do have to kind of understand how uh, whatever database you're working with uh, works at that point. And are these resolvers just written in JavaScript? So that's a good question. The resolvers for AppSync are written in a templating language called VTL, which is Velocity Templating Language. Um, it's something that we've used in AWS and other areas, but the reason we're using it, it uh, it's very well documented. It's very efficient. And we've had a lot of people actually ask us for other resolver languages, such as JavaScript. And we're really actually really thinking about and considering, you know, um, having other options. But for right now, we are using VTL and we have pretty good documentation around how to get pretty much um, anything done for the most part, um, at least teaching you how to do, you know, certain operations in VTL that you can then take and kind of apply to your own uh, template. So is that something where like I could use VTL templates to create JSON or HTML or like, is it like a PHP type of language or? To me, it looks a lot like JavaScript. I mean, but there's also parts in there that are, you know, look like other languages as well. If you're used to writing JavaScript, this VTL should be fairly easy to pick up. At least it was for me. I guess what I'm trying to ask, is it something that's more like, like EGS, PHP style where you've got text and then you're writing loops inside of it? Or is it something more where you've got some sort of language and you're appending text 
to it? Like, is it out, inside out or outside in, I guess? Okay, yeah. So you're not actually going to be, it's all about kind of the data that you're working with. So there's not really going to be any markup in there at all. It's all about doing operations. So you might, uh, you, you have two resolver mapping templates on every operation. You have a request mapping template and a response mapping template. So the response mapping template typically just ends up being a JSON um, object returning the database response. So that's usually, usually uh, for the most part, just one line of code. But the request mapping template is where you can get uh, more complex. And in there, you would do something like operation put item. That would be like one key value pair. And then you would have another key value pair that would be something like attributes. And those would be the values that you're passing in from your, your query. Uh, for example, and you might be passing in as the attributes might be an object with like an ID, a, uh, a name, and a completed Boolean in the uh, context of like a to-do app or something like that. And then what what you would do would be what what then it does with that mapping template. It then just kind of takes the attributes with the operation and does an operation, and then the response comes back through that response mapping template. Okay, I think. I think I understand. Yeah, because when you first said template language, I'm I'm imagining like PHP, EJS, ERB, but this sounds like more more kind of like what I would imagine in CouchDB from the way that it's described as like something where you're building an object that's going to be easy to to transport to serialize and deserialize. Hey, uh, AJ. Yeah. Were you going on like an acronym spree? Did you like get bingo or something? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. I did get bingo. Um, my chart is full. For those of you that are listening, we we have been secretly uh, contriving how many acronyms we can fit. No. <laughs> is, is there anything in there that we should explain? Any any part of your any of those acronyms that you think maybe we should give a little background on to listeners who may not be familiar with them? I know. Uh, well, you tell me. I don't know. I, EJB. <laughs> no, I haven't EJS. heard of that one actually. Uh, EJS. Is just uh, it's a template language that looks like PHP that's in JavaScript for Express primarily, I think. And then ERB is the same thing. It's like PHP style templates, but written in Ruby. Gotcha. Great. That's how I would describe it. Okay. All right. I'm caught up to date myself now. Okay. Sorry, you're about thirty years behind the times, Joe. <laughs> I kind of am. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe those terms are just so old that no one uses them anymore. Well, I haven't done I haven't done ton of templating with Express. I do know uh, EJB. Is that what it was? ERB. EJS and ERB. Oh, yeah, ERB. Yeah, EJ, EJS. Right. I played with that just a tiny bit, but there's another one in uh, that Express will, that you could do with Node. It'd be, it's like an add-on. That was like it's like a weird one, but it's sort of a. Uh, Handlebars, Ham mustache. Ham oh, Hamel. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of an interesting one. I really like Hamel, but uh, it's not very popular anymore. Yeah. I, that, that was simple and fluid and beautiful, but it didn't, didn't really win much on the popularity contest. If I remember correctly, it was almost like a combination between like Python style and then like when you see people typing in the editors and they like, Hit something and then tab yeah, it. The zen, the zen, uh, typing, yeah, the Zen HTML typing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like that. Anyway, a little sidetrack. Sorry about that. Let's get back to the topic. <laughs> Don't forget wow. about JSX. Oh, that's right. Yep, <laughs> JSX. Here's another. That's kind of a strange templating language too. Yeah. So anyway, so we talked about off storage, lambdas, app sync. Those were the big four. 
that you said that people are using Amplify for. And I'm even going to go back a little further. Oh, what, does somebody else have something? Yeah, I'm just saying, just like summarizing. We talked about GraphQL too. Yeah, AppSync is GraphQL. Yep. All right. right. So going back a little further. So what is what is Amplify, the CLI, what is it written in? Is it Nodi? So Amplify is the SDK, and then the uh, the CLI is, is actually called the AWS Mobile CLI, uh, right now at least. And the AWS Mobile CLI, um, it basically, are you saying like, what, what is it? Would you say, what is it written in? Yeah. 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 So it's basically, um, yeah, it's basically a JavaScript uh, CLI. It's actually open source. And um, you just install it and then you run AWS Mobile init. And then that will create like a basic uh, AWS Mobile project. And then from there, you have your local configuration, which works with Amplify. And then you can then start um, interacting with whatever service you'd like by adding the service. So I guess a typical workflow would be uh, like you create a React app, you install um, Amplify uh, locally as part of your like NPM dependencies, and then you would run AWS Mobile Init to initialize the, the cloud project. And then you would maybe run AWS Mobile User Sign-In Enable, and that would then add authentication. And then you could use the Amplify SDK to, to start signing up users and signing in users. And then you could run um, the enable command for any other of the services to then add those as well. Okay, so why is it called AWS Mobile? Because it doesn't sound like any of the stuff we've <laughs> talked about is particularly mobile specific. Yeah, that's a good question. And um, and we're actually in, you know, doing some stuff around the CLI as far as like the branding and naming and things like that, because you're absolutely right. This isn't mobile specific. And in fact, um, like a large percentage of our users are just web developers that need these services and that are building out these full stack applications using all this stuff together. So we're kind of... Um, going to be thinking, rethinking the, the naming behind uh, the CLI, at least uh, here in the short term. Well, was it started to do these services with the focus being on mobile and it grew to being more of a front end or? You know, I've only been there for about six months, but that's kind of the the, uh, the idea that I've, that I've gotten. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like if somebody is using, you know, developing on mobile, they might want to look into this to integrate with their React native or their actual native or their phone gap cordova whatever right yeah pretty much and and specifically like web stuff as well like we have um as part of amplify we actually have components libraries that are built in so if you're using angular we actually have a an angular uh aws amplify angular uh plugin that you can install that gives you pre-built ui for angular and ionic um, we also have that for react and, and Vue as well so if you're using any of these frameworks, you can actually get pre, pre-built UI for, for basic stuff like, uh, for instance, if you want to do a quick uh, authentication setup without actually having to r- write a sign-up form, a sign-in form, a um, confirm password and forgot password, you know, all that stuff that kind of goes along with it. You can just uh, import this uh, with Authenticator um, in React. It's a with Authenticator Howard component. And then you wrap whatever component you would like to have authentication around, and then that will automatically hide that component unless the user is signed in. So, like if you're using any of those libraries, we have these um, these other extensions that are built in. All right, cool. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. 
Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So what questions should I be asking you that we haven't <laughs> talked about yet? What's yeah, what stuff do you want to talk about? What stuff's cool? <laughs> what stuff is going to make everybody go, ooh? Well, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about the GraphQL stuff. Um, we, uh, we haven't really gone too much into like chatbots and, and, and maybe even a little bit further into serverless and Lambda functions and how you can actually uh, do quite a bit with those. Um, All right, we need to first back yeah. up and like define some of these terms. Yeah. So, uh, Chatbox, so, serverless, Lambda functions, I think all three of those would be useful to. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about chatbots. We have a category that's, that's part of Amplify called interactions. And it's uh, allows you to interact with chatbots. And then we actually have a chatbot component. What's the name of you your Siri? <laughs> yeah, basically. No, no, no. So what, what is what is the name of your Siri? What does the Amazon call it Siri? Alexa? Oh, is this, oh, okay. Alexa, Alexa yeah, chatbots? Yeah, okay. Are these Alexa chatbots? Well, so that's that's a good question. So um, what what it looks like, I guess, if you're a developer and you want to start writing this stuff, we have a service called Amazon Lex, right? So Amazon Lex allows you to create uh, chatbots and you can do a lot of things with this service. And, and the general idea is you have these, uh, you create a uh, Lex, um, and you instantiate, I guess, a Lex instance, or you create a new um, chatbot using Lex. And then you have within that uh, chatbot, you have these things that are called intents. And each intent is a separate, like almost mini app within that chatbot. And that intent is triggered by some type of utterance or some type of command that you would like that intent to be tr uh, triggered. So say, for instance, you created a chatbot that wanted you to order a hamburger and deliver it to your office uh, every day. But you wanted to choose you know, different toppings or whatever. You would create an intent that would be triggered by uh, a, a command that maybe has the word burger in it or maybe has the word order a burger and maybe he has uh, the words, I'm hungry. So you would have all these different uh, utterances that will trigger that intent. And then once that intent is triggered, you have a series of questions that you ask the user. And those uh, questions are set up within your, uh, your chatbot. So say, for instance, um, I, I triggered the order a burger bot. Then he's like, or she, whatever, responds, because you can set up whatever voice you like, <laughs> responds with something like, you know, how would you like your burger cooked? You know, what toppings do you want? Where are you located today? And then the burger would be ordered and, and sent to you. And then maybe you have a separate intent there that's like something like uh, text my wife or something like that. And then that intent is triggered by a separate set of uh, utterances. 
Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. Um, and if I'm if I'm not mistaken, I think Microsoft's Cortana APIs are are kind of on par with this to give reference of of something else that's similar. Does that does that sound right? That sounds about right. Yeah. So, do these integrate um, with Alexa skills for home IoT devices, or is this only web services? These will interact with anything you like, because really, what happens is that at different points within the interaction, within the conversation with the chatbot, you can actually send the data to a um, to a Lambda function. And if you've never worked with Lambda functions, it's basically a function that is running separate from any infrastructure that you're managing. It's just a function that you have hosted somewhere. And, and with AWS, that's within AWS Lambda. And you can write this function in Python or, or JavaScript or a few different languages. For me, it's always JavaScript. And so, for instance, you have this, this Lexbot that does this stuff. You can then take the result from that conversation and then send it to the Lambda function to then work with Alexa or whatever um, applications for, that you're working with. So really, if you're, if you're thinking about this in the context of Alexa, what the actual interaction might look like, well, you would have an Alexa um, skill kind of set up, and then the response from that would be sent to maybe uh, sent to Lex, your Lex chatbot. That would go back to Alexa, back to the user, and that would be kind of the workflow there. With, uh, with Amplify, this is kind of more working from the user's device. So you would be working like maybe catching voice from the user's device. If you've ever, um, I mean, you've probably used like, uh, uh, you know, any of these apps or any of these things where like for me, it's if I'm at home and I'm doing um, Apple TV, I'm like, hey, search for this movie on Netflix or whatever. It's kind of like that. But you're doing it from your device with the Amplify library. Okay. So that kind of makes sense. I, it's It sounds like this is more platform, more, more agnostic in terms of being able to get different things to come together and less, less integrated, like the Siri platform is kind of closed and integrated in its own container. And the Microsoft one is kind of hybrid. And this is just kind of like more full open, it sounds like. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wide open because you're, you're just writing JavaScript. But um, it with, when you're working with with Lambda, it just makes it easier though to work with AWS services. So if you're, uh, you can definitely you know work with external services, and in fact, a lot of people do. But we make it. Uh, I think they've made it really easy to actually just work within AWS services because you have um, your your functions being called um, within your within your um, account. So you don't have to worry sometimes about things like uh, permissions and stuff like that. If that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. And then I want to pass back to Joe for a second because he had some things that he'd brought up and I don't remember what they were, but. Well, I just mentioned that Lambda functions, we needed to just define those three things. Chatbots, Lambda functions, and he said something other else, right? So. Well, you, you also talked earlier, um, Natter, about PubSub and um, push notifications. And I... I understand push notifications, the stuff, you know, the notifications that come up on my phone or perhaps even on my desktop. But I think the ones I need a, a server for would just be like iPhone, Android push notifications. Um, so correct me on, on that if I'm 
I'm minimizing that at all, but I am curious what you mean by pub sub in this context. Yeah, so we have this component that you can import called PubSub from Amplify. And really, I haven't actually used it yet, to be honest. It's a fairly new component. But what it does, it allows you to easily work with IoT within the context of your AWS your AWS account. Um, and we have like different IoT services. And from what I understand, it just allows you to work easily with those. But I haven't actually used it yet, so I don't really have a lot to say without sounding like I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, I'll try to keep this high level then. I'm just curious, is are, is this like um, traditional web hooks that are running over HTTPS or are these lower level like custom TCP protocol type things for these IoT devices? Do you know? From what I understand, it's, I don't know the exact implementation, but you're basically, uh, it's event-based. So if you have uh, you have something that you'd like to subscribe to, you basically can call pubsub.subscribe, passing in the event that you'd like to subscribe to. And then every time um, that interaction happens, you then get that data passed to you, almost like an observable, if you've worked with observables, or uh, if you've ever done GraphQL like subscriptions, something like that. All right, that makes sense. Yeah, sorry, I don't know more details there. Uh, I need to look around and play with, play with this stuff here. Well, I mean, you've only been there six months. It's a lot of stuff to play with. We understand. (laughs) What Um, what excites you about this whole, about everything that's going on? What is the stuff that really drives you and makes you want to get up in the morning and come into work? Yes, that's that's a good question. Because like before I started with AWS, I was doing consulting um, and I was Mm -hmm. doing React Native consulting and training, which was actually a really good business because um, like if you're if you're listening and you're a consultant, one way to stand out and to like get business is to also label yourself as a trainer and actually to do training because when you're doing training, you end up having to learn more stuff in depth than, than you would have. So like you, you go to a training, people like tell you what they want to learn. So you end up having to do all this research. And then when you're at the training, you like get questions that you don't know. And um, then you end up having to like learn the answers to those. And then when you're selling your services, you end up... Um, being looked at uh, much differently because people then look at you as like, oh, this is the person that teaches other people how to do this stuff. Like he must be, um, or she or whatever, must be like on another level. But anyway, that's kind of off on a tangent, but it's kind of like the best advice I ever had when I was consulting. Um, Anyway, so that was doing good. I was making quite a bit of money and stuff, and I wasn't really even interested in changing um, my career path. But um, I I started helping out um, on a few projects with uh, some people at AWS Mobile that were doing some stuff around React Native. And um, I ended up flying out to Seattle and, and signing like an NDA and like getting a close look at some of the things they had in the in, in store. And I got really excited about some of the stuff they're working on because like when I started working with React Native, the reason that I really, really got excited about that was I could build a bunch of different things with my existing skill set. So with React Native, you can do virtual reality and you can do uh, desktop apps and web apps and, and mobile apps and all this other stuff without me having to learn a bunch of new stuff. Um, it's along the same lines with what we're working on at AWS Mobile uh, around Amplify and around a few things uh, similar to that CLI and with, uh, with AWS AppSync. Um, it, it's basically the idea where we're seeing more and more of these like different services that are coming, coming out that allow front-end developers to build more sophisticated applications without having to learn um, a bunch of new things as far as like 
um, working with uh, infrastructure and, and building out servers and, and managing servers and all that stuff. And it's exciting because we're going to be doing a lot of stuff and we already are doing things that allow front-end developers to kind of build these full-stack applications using only JavaScript. But also we're seeing, you know, in the industry as a whole with startups, how expensive it's becoming to hire developers and to build things because um, developers are just so much in demand right now and it's so expensive. So with, with some of the stuff that we're working on, we've seen companies build out their entire platform and, and launch their product with just one or two developers taking advantage of these services. And the idea is, um, and this sounds like a little marketing, but the idea is you're trading uh, capital expense for variable expense. And what that basically means is if you want to try an experiment and do something, you don't actually have to hire a backend developer to like build out this system and this database and then build out this, the feature and then launch it and see if it works. You can instead just subscribe to, to a managed service, try it out. And if it doesn't work, then you're not stuck with the bill of however much it costs to build that. But if it does work, then you get a bunch of users. Yes, you do end up having to pay for it, but you're only paying for it if it's successful. And that's kind of like, you know, in a, in a quick few minute rant, like why I'm excited about all the stuff we're working on. And I'm not sure if you all kind of agree with like how the certain, how the industry is kind of headed as far as like how things are expensive and, um, you know, being efficient, but, uh, you know, it kind of boils down to increasing developer efficiency. We're all for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I totally agree with the, like the general idea of finding what the common patterns are and making it easier for someone at the lowest level to be able to participate and be productive. The one thing that I would really love to see that I'm not aware of anything that exists yet is a is a, either a platform that's open or that can be purchased that can offer some of these benefits like without without having a subscription to it. Like something open source? I mean it could be open source or it could be something where, you know, like like you used to buy a server operating system, you know, like you'd buy the the Mac server operating system and it wasn't a subscription that you had to keep going back to. And it had like a lot of different tools that were in it about user management and stuff like that, that just came as part of the platform. And many of those things were standardized like LDAP, for example, you know, back in the old days. And so you, you reasonably could switch from one LDAP provider to another. Um, so I, like me, I really, what really excites me is especially um, when, because I think right now companies like Amazon, Microsoft in particular, those two, also Google a little bit, um, they're really pioneering what things should look like and how they should become. And I'm looking forward to when they start to become commoditized to the point where anybody can use them on any platform without, without being dependent on a subscription to a particular platform. Yeah, so basically like vendor lock-in, like uh, if you sign up a million users with uh, with a certain company and then you want to like, you know, do something else, it's kind of hard to, to move. Is that kind of the idea? But if you own the platform, you could do whatever you want with it. Yeah, and the other use case would be like on the small end, like the hobbyist that wants to do something that's self-contained or more privatized. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That would be really nice to see. I mean, you know, if you are someone that doesn't want to 
you know, spend any money and you want to have something that's significant to, to maybe do authorization without building it from scratch. I can't think of any free services that are just, you know, or, or anything like pre-built like you're talking about. That would be nice. Yeah. And, and it's not even a matter, like for me, it's not even a matter of necessarily being free, like not free as in free beer per se, but free as in free speech, like more, more, I, I guess what I'm really saying is I want to see protocols developed for these sorts of things. Like we have a protocol for email and all these different vendors support it. And people choose one vendor over another for various reasons of benefits that they get on that platform. But email itself is a protocol. Like what I'd really like to see is when, when things start to commoditize and what we see is protocols for things like Lambda functions, protocols for storage that are well-defined and vendor portable. I guess that's ultimately, because then you could have a paid solution, a subscription service solution, an open source solution, but they'd all be, you know, you choose the ones based on the benefits and there wouldn't be any login. That's that's what I hope to see in the future come out of all this great development. Well said, AJ. If anyone's listening and has any good ideas around this, now would be the time to to give it a shot, I guess. <laughs> I'm I'm really interested to see where all of these these cloud services go and how far they develop and and what kind of efficiencies that we get and and eventually there's going to be a problem where the efficiency needs are different and and tides will switch. I mean this happens throughout all of history with all sorts of industries. So I mean it sounds like you get to work on some really cool stuff and this is stuff that hopefully our listeners will have a lot of uh, um you know, it opened their eyes, if nothing else, you know, whether they choose to go to Amazon or someone else, but open their eyes to what's available and, and what they can reduce their their workload on to get started faster. Yeah, totally. And there's definitely other options. So, you know, a lot of the cloud service providers are kind of moving in this direction, but also you're seeing a lot of startups that are kind of just creating like services that do machine learning as a service or that do AI as a service. Um, and that you can, you know, just instead, again, of building your own implementation, you could subscribe to one of these um, ideas and kind of get in there and start making stuff without having to build it yourself. But I guess uh, also along the lines of what you were just saying, yeah, like as you see, like economies of scale with with AWS and some of these other um, providers, like it's going to be interesting to see if we're going to continue, continue to see innovation for, for these implementations outside of um, the larger companies, or if it's going to hurt or help innovation, because say for instance, um, it's so inexpensive and so easy to to do author, authorization. For example, with AWS or one of these other companies, um, will that prohibit someone coming out with something new and better in the future because they are not going to be able to compete in those types of questions? You know, well, I I think with that, innovation will follow niche markets, right? So it's when something gets big and established, generally speaking, innovation kind of comes to a plateau where all the things that can be innovated within that economic model have been achieved. And like you were saying, you know, your fear that innovation might be hindered, the innovation will develop in a different economic area, like with hydraulics. um, So there there used to be like uh, chain powered uh excavators and bulldozers type stuff they were they were they ran differently than our our hydraulic excavators but the hydraulic excavators didn't take over the big market that already existed the 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 hydraulic excavators took over ditch digging because they were under performance they didn't meet the same criteria 
they were like half the price with a quarter of the power, but for the people that needed it, it was the right price and the right power. And eventually hydraulics became good enough that they overtook. So I don't think that with Amazon becoming bigger and cheaper, that it will actually prevent innovation in that area. I think that a niche will develop that will create a different need that has different performance metrics. So this, the new innovation will perform much worse along the metrics at which Amazon is really great, but will outperform in areas where Amazon or Azure or whatever just isn't suited to. Oh, wow. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense, actually. That's a really good point because um, you're right. That's kind of where a lot of these companies start anyways with niche, whatever their target is, and then they get a user base and then they start adding and innovating and adding new features. And maybe even with uh, the economies of scale with AWS and these other cloud providers, um, it, you know, it'll lower the cost of development even to create new things that will compete, you know, even with the, it's like you're building a service on top of uh, your your future competitor using their technologies, you know, um, I'm sure that's already happening. Absolutely. So um, is, there, is there anything else that you just want to chat about? I mean, even if it's slightly off topic, just stuff related to this technology? I have something. I, you, you mentioned something. I was wondering if there's anywhere you maybe we could go with this, but you're mentioning AI as a service and ML as a service. I, I find that just an absolutely fascinating topic at all. So if you wanted to chat at all about that, I would love to chat about that. Yes, I'm, I'm totally um, really infatuated with this stuff too. And I've been playing around with it for the first time ever, I guess, um, since I started with AWS. And it's really, really cool stuff that you can do now where that you probably would uh, not be able to do five years ago. And if you were, you would have to be like a genius to be able to do this stuff. And it would take you a long time. So like the things that I've been playing around with, I, I did mention Lex, which is kind of, you know, considered, could be considered in that, in that realm. But I created like this one app. It's a React Native app and it takes user input and it basically allows you to go ahead and type something and then you can choose a language which you would like that translated to. And then you press submit. And what happens is it, it takes that and I actually set this up through AppSync. So it sends it through as a query containing the text and the language. It then translates the language into whatever um, language you would like. And then it takes the language and then synthesizes that to the speech to speech using the uh, accent of whatever the language that you would like it translated to. Um, so for instance, you can like take a sentence, translate that to German, and then it'll be someone with a German accent with that translated to. And then it takes that translation, which is an MP3, stores it in an S3 and returns the MP3 URL back to the client, the React Native app, which then plays it back to the user. And then um, my colleague took that one step further. Actually, he wrote this before I wrote mine, where you actually can just talk into the, into the app and then it does all that and translates it. Um, and then I saw a demo recently wow. where, and, and this like was like, like it's 50 lines of code or 60 lines of code. And that's like, as far as the logic is concerned. And that's like in my GitHub repo, it's called uh, AppSync Lambda AI. Um, um, so that's pretty cool. And then there was this uh, demo I saw that was uh, maybe a hundred lines of code where this guy uh, that works with AWS, he has like this app that like takes a picture um, whatever you like to do, and it sends it to this service that we have called Recognition. And Recognition will take any image and then 
um, return a JSON object with a bunch of data about that image. So like the JSON object returned with his face said like, uh, you know, um, gender, male, age, whatever, location, blah, 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 like height, like all this stuff like comes back. So you can like, he created this really funny app that like did, did that. And then it, it did some other funny stuff. But like, yeah, so basically the idea is uh, you use these, again, um, AI services or just managed services to do stuff. Um, and like all of the hard work is kind of done. You just basically pay um, for your usage of that service. All right. So I want to back up with just a little bit. Um, and I think that obviously hearing about some of these implementations is super like crazy cool, like that this is possible. But when it comes to like doing ML, so I've just dabbled a tiny, 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 tiny bit, like literally like maybe two hours, just enough. There's this new TensorFlow JS. So I kind of did a little bit of a hello world project. And I was watching some videos. And what I got out of all of that was unless you want to devote like a year or two of your life part time, that if I if you just decide, oh, there's this solution that I think ML might be a the right thing or there's this problem and ml might be the right solution for me that either i devote a whole bunch of my life or else it just i'm not going to write i'm not going to figure that out it's just too complex and hard to put that together so does ml as a service does it let you does it make these things simple because like you what you were saying is the sort of stuff that you had to be you know genius level to get through so the things that I've used, uh, I'm probably on the same level as you as far as like understanding ML. You just pass in data and 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 then you kind of can set some configuration. Um, so for instance, for the uh, translation, I think the, the the arguments were like the sentence and the language. Um, for for the uh, machine learning with uh, images and videos, you can just pass in the the image and that's about it. I think. And then um, maybe you can have parameters around like certain types of things you would like to do to it. I'm not actually 100% sure because I looked at the uh, at the API, but I haven't used it for image recognition. But yeah, you don't actually have to know any machine learning. You can just, it's basically JavaScript. For instance, uh, what I've done is in a Lambda function, um, that JavaScript would just say, hey, AWS dot whatever the name of the service is passing in an object containing the uh, image URL or something like that. And then the response is that JSON object with all of the data about the image. That's about as much as you have to know. Um, of course, like, you know, there are, I think we have a few services that help you build like machine learning models and stuff, but those are completely different. The ones that I'm talking mm -hmm. about are for like, like people like me that don't know how to write um, machine learning code. <laughs> right. Hmm, cool. How did you get started with all this sort of stuff? Like if somebody's listening and they're thinking, that sounds really cool. I want to straight start playing around with that. Where do they go to get started? Because I know where to go to like look at TensorFlow.js or some like Hello World with regular TensorFlow. What does it use? Uh, Python? But, uh, you know, what do you, to, do this, to do this sort of stuff on Amazon, where do you go to get started with that? To get started with the... Machine learning stuff, you can just go to uh, aws.amazon.com slash machine learning. And we actually have all of the different services together on that um, page with links to each one that have more, more information. So from, uh, from that link, you can look at image recognition and video recognition and um, conversational bots and all of the translation and uh, voice synthesization and a few other things as well. And then if, you, if you're a JavaScript developer and you want to learn how to do the building, you know, 
cloud-enabled apps from your React or Angular app, um, you can go to aws-amplify.github.io. That's Or you can just Google AWS Amplify, actually, and that would take you to this page as well as a bunch of other documentation that we have. Sweet. And, right. and I guess one more plug, uh, since we're on here, like, to, uh, you know, giving people information about how to learn stuff. I just did a blog post on TylerMcGinnis.com. Um, and that's just uh, his name, TylerMcGinnis.com. Tyler and, McGinnis is awesome. Yeah, he is. Um, and I did a post on his blog about building chatbots with React. And in that blog post, uh, we walked through like the entire process of building a chatbot. And we also actually then take that one step further and do the Lambda function with the response. So you can kind of see how that would work. If you're interested in that, then um, that blog post is fairly new. That's why I'm kind of mentioning it. And it goes along with what we were talking about. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for that. And uh, I think at this point, we should probably wrap up and yep. do picks. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price to performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash jabber. Uh, oh no, we lost Amy. So sad. I know what Amy would have picked. Do we want, we'll let Joe get his picks out of the way then, since they're right on the tip of his tongue. Sorry, Joe, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just want no to worries. make sure. No worries. Uh, so, of course, the Framework Summit coming up in October in beautiful Park City, Utah. Tickets are still available, and it's going to be freaking awesome. I'm so excited. Some of the coolest stuff uh tyler mcginnis will be there speaking he's actually one of the organizers um oh, cool. kent c dodds will be there speaking um he's gonna be giving this awesome talk about uh very uh, some uh, some concepts that apply to uh angular view and react with a couple of other people isaac mann and divya sasitaran who's a uh, on the views and view podcast so very cool Check it out. Last week, a couple of movies have been were, had come out, and I went and saw uh, the Sicario Day of the Soldado, which was a, a good movie. Not as I don't think it was quite as good as the original Sicario movie was, but still a pretty good movie. Definitely enjoyed that. And then the Equalizer Two, which again was a slight disappointment from Equalizer, but um, still both fun action movies. And uh, those are my picks. Excellent. And Natter, what have you got? Uh, so I have two picks. The first is GraphQL Finland. It's a GraphQL conference in Finland, and I think it's in um, November. No, it's in October. So it's fairly new um, as far as like the announcement, but it's actually the first year they've ever done the conference. So um, it's, but I know the organizers, so I'm betting that it's going to be really cool. I know the people that are going are going to be pretty cool because I'm going there. And um, some of my friends are going there that are cool. So, <laughs> but if you're interested in GraphQL and you're in Europe, or even if you're in the US and you're thinking about like wanting to visit Europe, um, even though it'll be kind of cold in, in Finland in October, that should be a good conference. And then um, my other pick is I was in San Francisco last week at, at, at AWS Loft, which is like we have two lofts in the United States that I know of. One's in San Francisco and one's in New York. And what it basically is, is this huge co-working space. And it's like really brand new and nice in San Francisco. The one in New York is in Soho. It's also pretty nice. 
Um, literally, you can go there and work for free as long as you have an AWS account. So if you're like paying for uh, like uh, like some type of co-working elsewhere and you want to try something else out once in a while, you can go there for free. All you have to do is just have an AWS account. And there's like free drinks and stuff. It's pretty awesome. And high-speed internet. So check it out. Cool beans. Since we were talking earlier about economics of scale and innovation, there's two picks that came to mind for me. One is a blog slash video version of the blog, or maybe it's a blog version of the video, but um, it's uh, Thoughty 2, Why is Modern Pop Music So Terrible? And it kind of explains that the reason that music is so terrible today is that it costs a lot more money to push a new sound or a new artist that is distinct and, and be able to get listener space for them. Um, and so we tend to just use that songwriter in Sweden and the other guy here in the U S to generate all the top forties and then just switch out faces with the same uh, composers to keep something feeling like it's fresh when it's actually not, but this is, this is just a natural reality of the economics of scale. As something becomes larger, innovation becomes unsustainable and it has to drop off the edges. And in order for innovation to happen again, it has to be localized. So you can never have something that's at global scale also be innovative just because of the natural way that economics and uh, the cost of trying ideas that will likely fail works. And for a very in-depth um, view on that, not the innovator's dilemma, but rather the innovator's solution. So most people reference this book called The Innovator's Dilemma, which is a great book. And I finally went back and listened to it and uh, I loved it, but it's really only half the story. There's a lot of excellent background in there, but the real meat is actually in the sequel, The Innovator's Solution. And as the name implies, The Innovator Dilemma um, identifies problems in economics of companies uh, for creating innovation. The innovator's solution identifies how to restructure organizations or create organizations where innovation can be successful or you can sustain innovations against the laws of, of scaled economics. Um, so those those are going to be my two picks. And I, it looks like Amazon dropped the audiobook, but I think if you go on eBay, you can still buy the audiobook. My guess is that Amazon is probably experiencing the economics of scale where offering continuing to offer CD audio is is probably going a against their acquisition of Audible and B becoming more expensive to keep things in inventory. And so um Amazon is actually a prime example of a business that is in its maturity phase where in in many areas, like there are fewer product varieties available on Amazon now, even though there are more product categories available than there's ever been before. Um, but anyway, all that all that economics of scale and innovation stuff is just really fascinating to me. So that's that. Okay, well, thank you very much for coming. Before we do that, uh, Nader, do we have contact information for you? Do you want to let everybody know like how they can follow you on Twitter or a blog that you write or any of that stuff? You, you, you've got your own podcast here on devshot.tv as well. Yeah, I can plug that. If you want to follow me like day-to-day uh, -to -day on Twitter, I'm Dabit3, D-A-B-I-T and the number three. I also write on Medium on a few different publications. 
but I'm Dab at three on Medium as well. So you can catch me one of those two places. If you're interested in React Native, also I'm the host of the React Native Radio podcast. Woo-woo. All right, cool. Well, uh, thanks so much for being on the show. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.